Well, I love that. That's my favorite song, Eve. I just. Uh, and who wrote it? I was just trying. Dave Carter. Dave Carter. Ah. Oh. Yeah, starting with that single cell, this is my home, all the way through. Yeah. And, oh, Donald, thank you for uh, bringing in the bodhisattva. Uh, when Paul said, we can choose whether this is happening to us or for us, uh, my response from deep without even thinking is that it's for us. It's showing us what it means, what the bodhisattva means. And the interesting thing, I was sort of hoping that um, Wes would tell you about my new book. <laughs> so we now have Joanna Macy about to talk to us and her uh, latest book. <laughs> is called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Uh, my favorite part of the title is the subtitle. But I have to explain the uh, Active Hope part because if anybody here was working with me uh, 10, 20 years ago, and I've been around quite a while, you might well remember me saying, Hope is a killer. Hope is wishful thinking. Don't go there. And I would never have imagined that I would write a book with hope in the title. So I uh, want to say that a discovery for me that involved in writing this is to realize that hope is not something you have. It's something you do. It's not a noun, it's a verb. And uh, so when you see it that way, then you can uh, be doing hope and uh, even when you're not hopeful. Because I have found that this country, uh, built as it is on dreams of manifest destiny and its own exceptionalism, et cetera, et cetera, has enshrined optimism and to the point where uh, you know, feel as if there's something wrong with you if you're not hopeful, it's very easy to, where being hopeful and smiling is the sign of a successful, competent anybody. It's how you sell politicians and cars and anything. And there's a tendency for us to be taking our pulse a lot. So am I optimistic? <laughs> you know, am I hopeful yet? Thinking that you need to be hopeful in order to... Uh, waltz out there and for the sake of all beings. And so uh, let me right away say that uh, hope is uh, loving, caring about your world, caring about it enough to step forward. Whatever you think of your competencies or whether you have a fail-proof plan or not, and you probably have a better chance of going somewhere if you don't have a fail-proof plan, that you're just ready to take this next step and after that, the next step afterwards. This book was uh, co-authored by Chris Johnstone, who is a physician in the United Kingdom, 
uh, living in Bristol and now up in northern Scotland. And uh, so he's not a Buddhist, but he is not a Buddhist in Buddhist practice by any way. He's an addiction specialist, which is appropriate, don't you think? <laughs> For and. Uh, but he's been in the work. We've been working together in group work for helping people uh, tell the truth about what it's like to be alive in the world today, to tell the truth about what they see and feel and know is happening to our world. And in, th in that process to discover uh, huge reservoirs of their own caring and to trust that. And uh, to really, it's bodhisattva training because it involves, as Donald just said, not being afraid of the suffering of our people or of our world. And when you're not afraid of that, then nothing can stop you. So he's not in Buddhist practice, but there are two terms in this book that are in Buddhist Sanskrit. And uh, one was bodhisattva, simply because we couldn't find a, a term in English that says it. And if you have a term, tell me. I mean, you can explain it with a phrase of a person who uh, is animated by uh, lively caring for all beings, a being who knows that we are so interwoven, interconnected, that knows that there's no private salvation, and that uh, the one with the boundless heart. So we said, well, we're just less, we're just going to keep it in the book, and the other. Uh, phrase, the word that we kept, was what the bodhisattva, what's enshrined in the bodhisattva's heart-mind, which is an intention, an impulse for uh, taking part in the healing of our world, for being in service uh, with, for all beings. And uh, there isn't a word for that either in English. So that word bodhicitta uh, is one that becomes more and more uh, powerful for us, uh, certainly for me, in um, being alive in this time. And also uh, in the looking, as we look together at what helps us. So uh, just scroll back uh, 36 years turning point in my life. I walked into the Boston Coliseum with my second son who was a freshman in college and my daughter who's in, still in high school. And we were going to uh, a Cousteau Society Day. How many of you remember Jacques-Yves Cousteau? Oh, good. <laughs> I walked in and I heard uh, Cousteau say, we have in, in another 30 years, the plankton in our oceans will be insufficient to uh, provide oxygen 
for sufficient oxygen for us. Somehow, you never know, I could have another moment just said, you know, I could have been looking at what she was wearing or, you know, but that just landed. And he only said it once and it just went right through me. And it uh, opened me up to a vast anguish of uncertainty. I mean, I took his word for it. He's an oceanographer. He'd sailed this oceans for decades. He was one of my heroes. But that we wouldn't have, and you know now, we have lost 40% of the plankton we had when he said that. So uh, I felt uh, as if I'd lost some ground to stand on. Well, that's almost the word for word, the phrase that was used, because I was studying the perfection of wisdom scriptures, uh, Prajnaparamita Astasastrika, and I'd gone back to school in my 40s, and this was the, these were the scriptures that first describe the Bodhisattva. And I was very interested in the descriptions and the metaphors that would, because I felt I need at some point, without my needing to explain it to myself, I needed to know about this human capacity. Because it was in this time, it's the dawn of the Mahayana. This was 500 years after the Buddha's life. But his central teaching of our interdependence had sort of circled around and come around first circle to be extra, extra powerfully perceived. And it was realized by people both in meditation and in every other part of Buddhist study and practice at the time that, because up till then, you know, at the time, the, the Bodhisattva was the earlier lives of the Buddha. But then people began really getting inside his teaching over the years of that uh, inter dependence, even more than interdependence, interexistence, and said, well, the bodhisattva is the one in us that knows that uh, there's no, as I said, private salvation, that we are inextricably part of each other and of earth, part of this world. And that... Um, I'm just remember. I'm just trying to remember where I was going with that. Meditate a little bit. <laughs> so, oh yes. So, uh, it, it's in that. So it, that those scriptures made like a clarion call. Wait a minute, guys. We're all bodhisattvas. How can? We say we're interdependent, interconnected, and it's only the Buddha in his early lives. We're all bodhisattvas. And so uh, then there are all these descriptors of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is, uh, has no place to stand. That was what came to me right away when I heard about the plankton. 
when I heard about the incredible uncertainty that is facing us, resulting on what we have been doing in our culture, in our technology, in our political economy. Uh, and uh, so I uh, have been since then helping, using the bodhisattvas, or not using, but but turning to the bodhisattva teachings as to how you can uh, be okay and uh, hang in there, uh, hang in there deeply, as Malcolm said, hang out deeply, uh, when you don't have sure ground, when the, it, the situation we're in is so uncertain. And the, um, so one of the ways is since you have a don't place to stand on, you fly. <laughs> and you fly uh, on two wings. You know what they are. What are they? Compassion and wisdom. Yeah. And you fly in the deep space of wisdom. And this is a wisdom that is a, a, a wisdom of our interbeing. And this wisdom is called the perfection of wisdom. And she is known as the mother of all Buddhas. Well, I, um, that Cousteau day had, a, had changed my life. Uh, not so much uh, that the plankton is that I went to all these different booths and panels, and there was on every stress point on our planet, now this was 1977, 36 years ago, whether it was oil spills or whether it was... Uh, nuclear uh, power, the whole thing, uh, deforestation, and uh, climate change was not yet out there, at, on, on, as that I remember. But the uh, total effect on me uh, after that word on the plankton was to... Uh, feel in my body-mind that maybe we might not make it. Not that we were doomed. It wasn't that we were, I was convinced we were doomed. But simply realizing that we might not make it was enough to completely change the frame and the feel of the ground under me and to change my uh, sense of uh, the purpose of my life. And that uh, I could see that our people, and what became, uh, as many of you know, my kind of chief preoccupation, which uh, is nuclear uh, radioactive materials, both from a nuclear power and weapons production, uh, that these uh, there is awful lot of terrifying news and that the tendency would be the big question 
would be how to be open to this, how to be with this that we're learning and not go crazy. So just look, it surfaced right in the book I brought out last year. How to be with what we're doing to the world, how to be fully present to it and not panic or go into paralysis. And I began to see the road, like the bodhisattva path that we would walk as being a road with two ditches, one one side panic, social hysteria, and the other side paralysis. And both are grounded in fear, are they not? And so how to be with uh, not caught in fear is to me uh, the, the feel sorry defining the um, journey of my life since then, and the uh, what I've written and and the work I've done and the help that the Buddha Dharma and the Bodhisattva Yana has been is how do we be present to a situation in a beloved world? that might, uh, might be going under and not check out. How can we bring our full presence? Because certainly you know in your own life, if your mother or your spouse or your lover or a dear person, your sister or your brother were there with a uh, terminal disease, you're not going to walk out the door. You're going to be right there. I want us to be with our world with that kind of, and I know that we're capable, just absolutely know that we're capable of that. And that it, uh, in that kind of presence, and it became clear to me that uh, that presence, full presence of heart and mind is the biggest uh, gift we can give our world. But at the point, there was a point right after that, that, plankton moment in my life when and that realization that we might not make it that there wasn't a ground sound that I really went into despair I didn't want to tell my family how I felt because I didn't want them to worry about me I loved them too much and I didn't tell my friends because I didn't want them to try to cheer me up that was the last thing I needed I are sort of like Job's comforters. I wanted to be with it. And, uh, but then it, it was hard to sustain. And so what I did was, God bless, whoever did it, maybe you told me, but one of somebody inside my head told me, get out there and you've got to work with other people. So I joined a team uh, under uh, of Ralph Nader's critical mass movement. And I got busy in a legal intervention, a, in, legal intervention, a kind of lawsuit against the Virginia Electric Power Plant, power company. And um, boy, that was amazing. These young people, they were 20 years younger than I was. They were law students or just, they were sharp. They were full of zest, and uh, they were like 10 times smarter than I was, but so they wanted to keep me busy. They thought I was very dear, and, <laughs> and, and they uh, sent me to work looking up the health effects around nuclear power plants. 
Oh, I went into the library of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which this is before the national security state now under Obama. You could do things like that. And I learned a lot. And I remember going back to them and I said, oh, what I'm learning. I'm learning about miscarriages and tumors and stillbirths and birth deformities. The closer you get to a reactor, doesn't need to have an, an accident. And, and I said, oh boy, when, when we tell people that and we tell the judge, it'll be over for the nuclear power industry. <laughs> they looked at me and said, uh-huh, yeah, Joanna. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I grew up a lot on that. And what I learned was, more important, and, and, and by the way, we lost. We lost the lawsuit, and it still was one of the most valuable things of my life because I realized the utter joy of uh, working with a group of people whom you automatically love and admire because you're pouring it out, doing something for the larger web of life. And, uh, and you respect them so. Don't you love respecting people? Oh, it's just the best thing, admiring them. I love admiring people. And here, when you start working on a cause like this, uh, so lesson number one, or maybe three, maybe I gave you some lessons already, but one is... If you want to do something in the world, don't you dare try to do it alone. This is for this is for working with people. And you find out so much when you link arms with them. And it means going to where you can see the problem. Don't just read about it. Go down and look at it. Look at the fact that it's right there on an earthquake fault, that reactor. I felt the same thing about the tar sands sometime later. It was beginning to worry me, and I thought, I've heard about this. I need to see it. How do I see it? Oh, I just got an invitation to give a talk in Alberta. <laughs> oh, there's Jennifer Berezan. She's from Alberta. And so I said, Jennifer, will you go with me to see the tar sands? So what we did is we organized an event in her hometown at the time of her family in Edmonton. And we took the money that we'd earned by our event and we went up to Fort McMurray and we hired an airplane and we flew out over the tar sands hundreds of miles of hell, of stinking horror with machines three times the size of this house, practically. And we saw it with our own eyes. Now, what I didn't, I just knew I had to see it. So that's another lesson. You may be like me and need to, to be present to your world, actually see something. I couldn't have imagined that Jennifer would turn it into art and she's ready to sing you her song about the tar sands that resulted from this. That's my lesson number five.
Joanna, I loved what you said about um, not doing things alone and the kind of joy that comes from being together, even in the most difficult circumstances. Because I remember getting off that airplane. There were five of us on this little plane. Um, and we got off, and it was such a mixed feeling of horror and distress and love. And uh, to be there, especially with Joanna, and to, to witness that together and feel the combination of just rage, really, and um, the love for the land, uh, that very potent combination, and the feeling of connection to the other people that we were on the plane with that I'll never, ever forget my whole life. So this is a song called uh, My Memory Forever. This is Evely Posh and Barbara Borden going to play this with me. Canada, my homeland, the 
majestic beauty I can't believe you're sailing on the Northland away In America we're bleeding all the life from the world Like a junkie who Remember when we got to the uh, airport, Jennifer, at th before we got on the little plane, and uh, and there was a First Nation woman uh, going up uh, upstream uh, to the, the settlement there on the Athabasca, and um, and the water's poisoned, and the air's poisoned. And there are these big ponds, and they, if the flyover of geese and ducks, if the ducks get land, they're dead. So the these big Suncor and these other big, that's American money, American corporations up there. They put cannons by boom to shoot the cannons so that the wild fowl in, in migration don't. So they, and now, uh, but the native people. And so, it's wonderful to see them moving now and idle no more. Oh, what they can teach us. And among the things that uh, they can uh, teach us is to uh, how to mourn. And we don't have in our culture uh, funerals for those, uh, many of our brother-sister species that are just uh, tipping into extinction, that they don't have enough habitat left to survive another generation or two. And we have no ways that we need to develop. Let's do that here at Spirit Rock, that, that we can water our souls in uh, being able to be fully present, just as you greet 
the beauty and a child and the wonders or gifts of life so that we can uh, uh, be uh, washed by those tears. I think Malcolm mentioned that, didn't he, about what tears can do to you. So uh, this, uh, what, what um, climate change can do to you or for you. You know, last week there was this conference in the Bay Area on uh, renewable energy, and uh, uh, there was a mayor of a town in Kansas, Greensburg, Bob Dixon, and his whole town was wiped out by a tornado. And he was telling how the town is completely rebuilt, 100% renewable. And he said, where did I write that down? He said, we took the wind that destroyed our town and turned it and built it up to restore our town. This is almost a little like a tantric flip, isn't it? Yeah, it's just uh, wonderful. So we're asked to be uh, inventive like that. We're asked to go totally beyond what we think is going to show us off as a really canny activist. Uh, then that, that there's, and how not to try to even try to compute your chances of success. I my, brought along my favorite quote from Paul Williams, when feelings of personal futility come over me. I remember what he said, how dare I be discouraged by anything so trivial as fear of personal failure. Because what you're doing is that you're letting a much larger purpose move through you. That's what uncertainty can do for you. It can acquaint you with this bodhicitta, with the intention of the bodhisattva. And you can feel it, I've discovered, all the more um, powerfully because of the uncertainty, because there's no one, no one, can tell us whether we're going to pull through or not. And if they try to, don't believe them. Because it's the not knowing that sharpens our presence and makes us alert, makes us be there, opens us up to the courage and risk-taking that can reveal our true nature. So... So you can't count on anything out there. The one thing you can count on is your own caring, your own yearning, because you really give a shit. That, you can count on that. That's one way to translate bodhicitta. <laughs> yes. So training, I want to just, um, how much more time do I have? Five minutes? Ooh. Well, I'll skip that part. Well, just, I've got, all right. This is from 
a climate scientist telling what we will learn to do in this time, even if we survive because of the changes already in store for us, the huge changes that climate change will uh, inevitably bring. We might pull through it, but there's going to be very hard slogging. And so this scientist, Suzanne Mosier, writes, What then is asked of someone who chooses to be of service in this time? I think it's to be a steward, a shepherd, an arbiter, a crisis manager, a grief counselor, a future builder. You must be capable of helping people face new, more difficult, more pervasive challenges than ever before. This person, that's you guys, be cap must be capable of holding that which is happening to and in our world. You, we, will need to mentor, guide, and assist people in processing enormous losses, human distress, constant crises, and seemingly endless need to maintain, restore, and rebuild. This is a made-to-order. Are we up to it at this point of our evolution to blossom into capacities of wisdom, moral strength? You know you have it in you. You know we're capable of that. We just have to be honest with ourselves. We have so much going for us. That wasn't a bodhisattva scholar writing that. I find that uh, the we're asked at this time what has made the biggest difference for me is expanding my temporal context and working with other people. That is the time span, the timescape that we're living in beyond our separate lifetimes. Because the causes of climate change is that it's so far beyond what we brought about. It's so far beyond our personal culpability. Come on, that could just shut us down. How can I feel responsible for that? How can you, if you look to the causes? And then if you look to the consequences, oh my word, how can one claim be responsible for something so vast? So what do you do with your own sense of agency and responsibility? You have this life in which to act with your hands, mind, mouth, heart, brain. But you also need, it seems to me, grounding in something so much wider than your lifetime. Because our karma now, the consequences of our actions, uh, goes 
into geological time spans. So we can learn what the Bodhisattva in Buddhist literature, and particularly in that wonderful school of Mahayana Buddhism that's conveyed in the Flower Garland Sutra and the uh, Avatamsaka to understand that on the one hand, we are just in this moment, we're faced with this situation, but on the other hand, we've been here since the beginning of time. Look at your hand. That hand that we can look at it. The, the hand that we can act with now to reach out, to grasp, to lead, to comfort, to guide. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of that hand, of that body, goes back to the first splitting and spinning of the galaxies. And as one of my teachers, radiologist, Sister Rosalie Bertel says, every being who will ever live in the future is here now. Where? In our ovaries and in our gonads and in our DNA. And the decisions that we make now pertaining to our policies and how we live in our civilization will have everything to do with whether future beings a thousand generations from now will be able to be born sound of mind and body. So they're here. The future ones and the ancestors are here. They're wanting to help us, but they only have our bodies to work through. The Avatamsaka Sutra says the Bodhisattva knows that there's uh, one body, this body here, but also all the bodies of all the beings. You're working with both. It's as if all of creation, uh, all of that exquisitely interconnected web of life holds time as well as space. And I'm imagining that as we face climate change, the causes are so distant and the consequences so vast that we are up for a transformation in how we experience space-time. And to just give you a clue to that, I would like to end with uh, your listening to uh, what's called the Ten Enterings of the Bodhisattva from the Avatamsaka Sutra. And I will just uh, read, the, read it and then you'll hear it sung by uh, an anti-nuclear sister of mine. But I want you to feel both in my words and then in the, when not quite yet, I'll wave. Um, how does the Bodhisattva, that's you guys, that's me, how do we do the ten universal enterings? And what are they? They are to bring all the universes into one hair 
and one hair into all the universes. You will see that this is a holographic vision of reality. There are a lot of thinkers in this time. Stan Groff, Bohm, Carl Prebrom, Bertalan Fian Systems there. You see in science showing that the whole is in the part. We know about the part being in the whole, but the whole of which the whole story is also within each part. To bring all sentient beings' bodies into one body and one body into all sentient beings' bodies. With the radioactivity from Fukushima that is here on the West Coast now and has been for two years, what's happening to the children in Tohoku and northern Japan isn't just there, it's here. It's like we're in all bodies. Do you follow me? That this, this transformation of our uh, relation to space-time, where we are in this moment and at the same time, by this extraordinary development of, the, of our karma, that uh, we are uh, in intimate interconnection with all that is. When a bodhisattva attains the ten wisdoms, she can then perform the ten universal entrings. What are they? To bring all the universes into one hair and one hair into all the universes to bring all sentient beings bodies into one body and one body into all sentient beings bodies to bring inconceivable cowpots into one moment and one moment into inconceivable cowpots to bring all the Buddha's dharmas into one dharma and one dharma into all the Buddha's dharmas to bring an inconceivable number of places into one place and one place into an inconceivable number of places to bring an inconceivable number of organs into one organ 
and one organ into an inconceivable number of organs to bring all organs into one non-organ and one non-organ into all organs to make all thoughts into one thought and one thought into all thoughts to bring all voices and languages into one voice and language and one voice and language into all voices and languages to make all the three times into one time and one time into all the three times this is the supreme samadhi Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.